If you would, please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 15, uh, the Gospel of John, and we'll be again this morning in chapter 15. The verses that we'll be considering this morning are verses 9 through 17, but we'll read together for the purpose of context, verses 1 through 17. So please follow along as I read John chapter 15, beginning at verse 1, and we'll read through verse 15. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. And now the verses we'll be opening up this morning. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I've heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. There's a discussion in uh, evangelical circles, Christian circles, and it's um, carried over into um, wider uh, cultural and historical spheres, uh, discussions, uh, that, that center around a certain question that's becoming particularly hard to answer in our day and age. The question I have in mind is the question, uh, what is or who is an evangelical Christian? What does it mean to actually be an evangelical? Uh, We identify ourselves as evangelical Christians, and lots of other people do throughout America and throughout the world. And that question of of what it means to be an evangelical Christian, uh, you may or may not be aware, is being debated in our day and age. It's being debated culturally. Uh, If you watch various news outlets, uh, you would maybe draw the conclusion that the appropriate answer to that question, who is an evangelical, is uh, white Republican voters, Uh, that evangelicals are often characterized in the media, in the news, as a particular voting bloc. Uh, They vote for Republicans usually, and they are catered to upon that basis. And again, if you're just watching news outlets, which I don't recommend that be your sole source of information, 
you would probably arrive at, at that sort of understanding. At least that's how journalists and, and, and news anchors seem to uh, characterize evangelicals. But, but in Christian circles, and we're interested in Christian answers, uh, there, there are a number of ways that question could be answered. You can answer it theologically. You could probably answer it biblically, which is maybe the best way to answer the question. You could also answer the question historically. Uh, there was a movement uh, that began in the 18th century uh, that is properly called the evangelical movement. And now, I'm not interested in providing a, a definition of what it means to be an evangelical, but I want to consider for a moment what that meant historically. There was a, a movement that began in the 18th century known as the evangelical movement, and there were two figures that were especially prominent in the beginning of that movement. Those figures were George Whitfield and John Wesley. George Whitfield and John Wesley were itinerant preachers. George Whitfield preached in England and he preached in America. And, and Whitfield, uh, he's, he's something of an early Billy Graham, if you know who Billy Graham is. Remarkably fruitful traveling evangelist and had sort of what we might think of as crusades all over the British Isles and in America. And John Wesley, for his part, did a similar thing. His ministry was mostly focused in Britain, and he is sort of the forerunner of what became Methodism as a denomination. Those early evangelicals had a number of concerns, things that were important to them. One of those concerns was the state of religion in Britain in their day. You had a state church in Britain, and Members of that state church, everyone in England was a member of that church for the most part, and they were concerned that that brought about in English religious life a certain nominalism, that you identified as a Christian by virtue of your baptism or by virtue of your birth or by virtue of being a, a member of the state because there was a state church, the Church of England. And what Whitfield and Wesley were concerned with was was whether or not someone truly knew the Lord, not whether or not they identified with the state church or the, 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 the cultural Christianity of their day. They wanted to know if you were born again, if you had truly been converted. They were after heart religion, true religion, not formalism, not religiosity, not nominalism. And I, I can't help but in, in reading about the narratives of these men and their ministries, uh, I can't help but see a parallel to our day and age in our context, in the American South. Uh, though this is changing, it's still not uncommon uh, for vast swaths of the population to identify themselves as evangelical Christians. But when you begin to ask them about what that means exactly, you realize that their understanding of what it means to be a Christian is very, very different from the Bible's understanding of what it means to be a Christian. Now, I want, I want to distill this to a particular concern that, that, that I have. And that is that we have perhaps failed, generations of church ministry has failed, I think, in clarifying this point, that the gospel call, the gospel call is not principally a call to make a decision or to walk an aisle or to pray a prayer or to quote-unquote get saved. The gospel call is an invitation to become a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, to become a follower of Christ, to turn away from sin, repenting of sin, and believing upon Jesus Christ, trusting in Him, and then becoming a Christ follower. 
It's, it's not about signing a card or, or having some sort of existential emotional experience at one point in time that you can then point back to for the rest of your life. The call to become a Christian, the call to new birth is a call to become a disciple, a call to become a Christ follower. We see this in the Great Commission, don't we? We're to go into all the world and make what? Not decisions, to make disciples, which is a far more comprehensive work, a far more comprehensive thing. And so I'm concerned that there are thousands, possibly millions, throughout the United States of America who fundamentally misunderstand what it means to be a Christian. That we're not just trying to, to get spontaneous baptisms or get decision cards signed. We are after followers of Jesus Christ, disciples who are devoted to Him, who love Him, who live in fellowship and communion with Him, and who keep His commandments and follow His ways and serve Him as their Messiah and their Lord and their God. This is one of the reasons why the upper room discourse in John's gospel is so important. Because in the upper room, John 13 through 17, we have something of the blueprint of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, what it means to be a follower of Christ. I'll remind you in, in this context, Jesus is a few hours away from his death, and he's there with his disciples. He's there with men that we'll see later on in his high priestly prayer in John 17. Jesus is so clear. They, they've embraced him. They've believed him. They have followed him. And now he's talking to them about what that looks like and what that means and what entailments that has for everyday life as a disciple of Jesus. And I want us to see something of that in these verses this morning in John 15, 9 through 17. Uh, there are five headings this morning. There are five loves in this passage. Uh, individuals loving one another, groups loving one another, five loves that I think if we sat around in a Bible study setting, we would all see them pretty clearly. I want to list them for you. Five loves in this passage. There's the Father's love for the Son, the Son's love for the Father, the Son's love for us, our love for the Son, and our love for one another. The five loves. C.S. Lewis had a book called The Four Loves. That's a completely different thing. We're looking at the five loves in this passage this morning. I want us to consider them one after another. I'm going to be fairly brief and quick with the first two, and we're going to take those up at a later time in a later text in John 17, but they need to be mentioned here. So please look with me at these five headings. The first is the Father's love for the Son, and it's just stated there in verse 9, as the Father has loved me so have I loved you. Abide in my love. As the Father has loved me, in the way that the Father has loved me, I have loved you. Now, it's important that we understand how the Father loves the Son for a number of reasons, but the reason of peculiar interest in this passage is it's something of a paradigm, not in every particular every detail, but it's something of a paradigm for how Christ Himself loves us. So we read, the Father has loved the Son. Now, how does the Father demonstrate His love for the Son? Well, all sorts of ways. I want to limit our consideration this morning to just the Gospel of John. Now, what ways in John's Gospel up to this point have we seen the ways in which the Father expresses His love for the Son? And we can categorize these a number of ways. I'll just mention a few. First, we see this in that the Father is pleased with the Son. He approves with the Son. You might remember the account of Jesus' baptism. Uh, when it's recorded in John's gospel, John the Baptist says, I saw the Spirit descend upon him, 
and it remained on him. And the other gospel accounts include the, the, the words that came from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. We see that in those words, we see that especially in the spirit descending on Jesus and remaining on Jesus. An indication that this is my anointed servant. This is the one who will do ministry in the Spirit's power. My Spirit is upon him. He speaks for me. I approve of him. I'm pleased with him. And I think this is what Jesus talks about later on in in John 6 when he says, upon the Son, the Father has set his seal. Uh, he, he, He is a representative of God to man. He has the seal of God upon him. He has the approval of God for his mission. In John 10, verse 17, Jesus says, For this reason the Father loves me. This is the reason. Because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. The Father sees the Son fulfilling the mission that he had given to the Son. He says, I love the Son. Because he lays down his life for the sheep. He's pleased with the Son. He approves the Son. Also, we have seen in John's gospel that the Father has given authority to the Son. And he's invested in bringing glory to the Son. Again, in John 6, Jesus says that the Father will direct souls to come to the Son. All that the Father gives me, Jesus says, will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. And then in verse 40, we read, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up at the last day. The will of the Father is to direct the attention of sinners to Christ, that they might be saved, to direct their faith, to direct their devotion, to to direct their worship to the Son. He wants to give souls to the Son, authority to the Son, worship to the Son, glory to the Son. Uh, Jesus, of course, says in John 8, verse 54, He says, if I glorify myself, that is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me. John 13, verse 3, at the beginning of the upper room, uh, Jesus says, the Father has put all things into my hand. The Father demonstrates His love for the Son. One of the ways is in giving authority to the Son, directing worship to the Son, and glorifying the Son. But now the, the third way I'll mention, and this is most important for our consideration this morning. How does the Father express His love for the Son? It is in that the Father and the Son enjoy mutual communion with one another. They enjoy a oneness with each other, mutual communion and fellowship with one another. In John 5, Jesus says this in verse 19, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing, for whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. The idea is a sort of relational intimacy. How is the love expressed between the Father and the Son? The Father's disclosing to the Son what he's doing. He's showing the Son his person and his plans and his purposes. He's opening himself up to the Son, and and Jesus is claiming this peculiar intimacy with the Father. He loves me. He shows me all that he is doing. Jesus at the grave of Lazarus, remember what he says there? He says, Father, you always hear me. There's communication that is happening between the Father and the Son. The Father disclosing Himself to the Son. The Son disclosing Himself to the Father. The Father always hears the Son. There's a relational intimacy and communion and fellowship between the Father and between the Son. Of course, Jesus says, John 10, verse 30, I and the Father 
are one. We possess a certain unity, a certain communion together. Let me ask that you please turn to John 17, just a page or two over in your Bibles. In John 17, we have recorded the high priestly prayer. The high priestly prayer is a wonderful passage. I'm just so thankful that the Holy Spirit inspired the Apostle John to write his gospel because his is the only one that contains the high priestly prayer. It's a most precious passage, and we should read it often. But in John 17, there's so much that's going on, so many themes. It'll take us a few weeks to open up this chapter in a few weeks together. I just want to read verses 20 through 26 and observe the ways in which Jesus expresses this communion that He has with His Father, the love and the approval and the harmony that exists between the Father and the Son. Verse 20, Jesus prays, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in Me through their word, that they may all be one, just as You, Father, are in Me and I in You that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Now, there's so much in that passage. We could go down all kinds of trails at this point, But but all I want you to see there is is the way in which Jesus expresses the oneness and the communion that he possesses with his Father. He says, the Father is in me. I am in the Father. There's a oneness that they, they possess with each other. There's a communion that they have with one another. And it's characterized by love. The Father loves the Son. The Father gives glory to the Son. Jesus makes reference to that a couple of times, the glory that the Father has given to the Son and the love that they share between them. And in some ways, that becomes a sort of paradigm for the relationship we experience with Christ and indeed with the whole Godhead. But all I want us to appreciate at this point is that one of the primary ways in which the Father expresses His love for the Son is in this relationship of mutual communion that they have with one another. So now consider with me secondly, that's the Father's love for the Son. Consider with me secondly, the Son's love for the Father. Now, now where do we see that in this text? Again, if we were in a small group setting, I'm sure we would see it. Uh, It's in verse 10. If you keep my commandments, Jesus says to his disciples, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Now, how does the Son, and again, we'll just stay with John's gospel, How does the Son demonstrate His love for His Father? How does that come to the fore in John's Gospel? If you've been with us in this series, hopefully some verses are coming to mind. It it would be true to say that there are a number of ways in which the Son might express His love for the Father, but there's, there's one way primarily that sort of takes the cake, that gets the most coverage in John's Gospel and even in Jesus' own words. And that is that, that the Son demonstrates His love for the Father in His joyful obedience to His Father's commands. 
to his happy adherence to the will of his Father. I'm just going to rattle off a few texts. You don't need to turn there. You could write them down if you'd like. In John 4, verse 34, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That sustains me. That drives me. My food is to do the will of my Father. John 6, verse 38, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 8, and verse 29, uh, and he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. John 10, 17 and 18, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. What's the charge? The charge to come into the world. The charge to lay down his life for the sheep. And the charge to take his life up again. He's fulfilling a divine errand, a divine mission, a divine task given him by the Father. John 12, 27 to 28, as Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, the final days before his death. He says this, now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and will glorify it again. Jesus, as he is distressed and is approaching his death, he said, well, what am I going to say, deliver me from this hour? This is why I've come. This is my mission. I do this in submission to the will of my Father, and my object in this is for him to be glorified. And then maybe the most clear sort of summary statement we could give is found in John 14, 31 in the upper room itself. I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. How does Jesus demonstrate his love for the Father? Being very precise with the terms, how does he demonstrate his love to the Father? He says, the world is going to know that I love the Father as they observe me keeping his commands. That is the principal way in which Jesus demonstrates his love for the Father. His joyful, glad-hearted obedience, his contented submission to the will of his Father. And you see something, I think, in these passages of Jesus' eagerness. Eagerness to pursue that pathway by which he could express his love for his Father. And knowing that it pleases the Father when he obeys the Father and submits to his will, he eagerly pursues that pathway of demonstrating love to his Father. Okay, now consider with me thirdly. Thirdly, the Son's love for us. We've seen the Father's love for the Son, the Son's love for the Father, and again, those themes will be opened up at a later time in a later sermon, God willing. Now consider thirdly, the Son's love for us. The Son's love for us. For us. I'll just say at this point, don't miss in John's gospel the love that the Father has for us. It's not emphasized or stated in these verses that we're looking at right now, but it's all over the gospel of John. John 3.16, God so loved the world, and we know that's a reference to the Father because it says God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. There is a very sad, tragic sort of trend, perspective, 
that prevails in a lot of evangelical circles, that if you have the Godhead, the triune God, and you want to think in terms of the triune God loving you, that love comes to you principally and sometimes even only by the Son. That's a terrible mistake to make, and that is disallowed by the Bible. The Father is love, and He is the one out of love who sends His Son into the world. And in fact, in John 16 and 17, there will be more references to the Father's love for His disciples, for Christians, than the Son's love. The Father loves His people, but the emphasis in this passage is on the Son's love for us. And where do we see that? Look with me at verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. And then verse 13 Greater love has no one than this, which I think means that there's no greater standard for love, no greater way by which love can be demonstrated. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends. If you do what I command you, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, I've loved you, abide in my love. And then he, he cites this principle, greater love has no one than this, than that a man lay down his life for his friends. He says, you are my friends. I am about to embark upon the greatest demonstration of love possible in the laying down of my life for my friends. Now, now how does Jesus, in what ways does he demonstrate his love for his disciples. You'll remember the way the upper room opens in John 13, verse 1. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. We spent a whole sermon on that one verse. Having loved his own who were in the world. Who, Who were those? They were the disciples. He loved them to the end. So in what ways has Jesus demonstrated his love for his disciples? There's a myriad of ways. He loved them by coming into the world on their behalf. He loved them by coming into the world on their behalf. One of the most wonderful verses in all the Bible, and it's a verse that that truly I call to mind every week. It's 1 Timothy 1.15. It's a wonderful verse to ask your kids to memorize, especially this time of year. This is a trustworthy saying. It's deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Kids, why did Jesus come? There's lots of ways we could answer that. I know no better answer than that answer. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And these disciples were sinners. And Christ Jesus came to save them, an expression of his love for them. He loved them by calling them. You'll remember in John 1, he actually calls them by name and draws them into fellowship and companionship with him. He loved them by teaching and instructing them and revealing himself to them, disclosing his mind and heart to them throughout his earthly ministry. He loved them by tolerating their deficiencies and all their inadequacies and sins. He loved them by keeping them in the faith and not allowing them to fail to the ruin of their souls. He loved them by holding them fast and committing himself to never cast them out. He loved them supremely and ultimately by going to the cross to die for them. And that's what 1 Timothy 1.15 has in mind. He gives his life so that they might be saved, so that they might have 
eternal life. And this is the standard that's cited in verse 13. Greater love has no one than this. There are all these things I might do to demonstrate my love for you, my friends. This is the greatest, that a man lay down his life for his friends, that the shepherd lay down his life for the sheep. Christian, if if you are struggling, wondering whether or not Christ loves you, you will not find an answer to that question by looking within, or by examining your track record the past week or month or something like that. And, and, and you probably will not find it by flicking on Christian radio or something like that. The, the most convincing proof that Jesus loves you is found in the cross itself. He designed it that way. You cannot ask any more than what he has done at the cross. I have no other argument. I know no other plea. It's enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. That's our only hope. That's our only plea. That's the greatest demonstration of the love of God for man, the love of Christ for sinners, that he went to the cross, that he laid down his life, and it's the most convincing proof we can call to our minds that he loves us, that he's gone to the cross for us, that he's died for us, that he's paid the ransom for my soul, and surely that's the greatest way in which he loved these disciples. This is how he loved them, and this is how he loves us. That's the big way in which Jesus loves these disciples, but I want you to notice something else. There's there's another way in this passage in which the love of Christ comes to expression. It's certainly in the laying down of his life for his people. That's the big one, but there's another one. He loved them by disclosing himself to them. And I mean here in terms of like an ongoing relationship with them, an ongoing unfolding of his mind and of his purposes for them. I'm looking now at verse 14. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants. Now he's going to distinguish What's the difference between being a servant and being a friend of Jesus, one of those friends for which Christ lays down his life? For the servant does not know what his master is doing, what his Lord is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. The idea is that Jesus has unfolded deep mysteries to them. He's unfolded the truth to them. He's disclosed something of his heart to them. What makes you a friend of Jesus? You know, there's a, a very sad sort of colloquial way in which you'll hear some Christians talk about this. Jesus is my friend. Jesus is my buddy. Jesus and I are boys. And it becomes very casual, very colloquial. Listen, nothing about our friendship with Jesus is reciprocal. Um, you, you can't say to Jesus what he says to you. Well, Jesus, you're my friend if I do what I command you. That's blasphemous. He condescends to make us his friends. It's not a buddy relationship. It's the king of glory drawing us into fellowship and communion with him. And, and that communion with him is characterized by this disclosure of the heart of the Father and of the plans and purposes of the Godhead. It's bringing knowledge into our minds and into our hearts. It's revealing truth to us through the words that we have in Scripture. Jesus says this earlier in John 15. Abide in my love, my words abide in you. His words abide in us. John 14, earlier in the upper room, 
Jesus said that, 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 that the one who they love, the Father and the Son will come, they'll make their home with Him. That idea of relational intimacy, communion, fellowship. Jesus is disclosing truth to us. Now, I want to sort of relate a sidebar at this point, okay? There are some people, some Christians, who will talk about closeness with Christ, a relationship with Christ, the experience of intimacy with Christ, as if that comes to its fullest expression in sort of vague impressions that we sense Christ might be giving to us. I frequently hear Christians talk this way. I was at the beach on vacation, and I don't know, just one morning I was walking, I saw the sunrise, it was so beautiful, and that's when I knew God wanted me to take the job. It was like Christ was talking to me. He told me we should get that house, or I should go into ministry, or something like that. Listen, I don't know where that idea comes from. That is totally alien to the Scriptures. The way in which intimacy with Christ is nurtured is through our attention to His words. Christ has not left us without revelation. And He says, you're my friends. What are the terms of this friendship? I'm going to reveal the Father to you. I'm going to give you my words. I'm going to give you the truth. And those words are going to abide in you. And and by those words abiding in you, you'll abide in my love. And we'll experience relationship and communion together. Listen, you don't have conversations with Jesus, relationship with Jesus, intimacy with Jesus, apart from His Word. Christ doesn't speak to us in the formations of the clouds. He doesn't speak to us through random coincidences. He speaks to us through His Word. As was said in the equip class this morning, Hebrews 12, God has spoken through His Son. The idea is revelation. Jesus wants to disclose truth to us. And our friendship with Him, our being drawn into fellowship with Him is on the conditions of truth being impressed upon our minds. If you want to know Christ, and experience His love in deeper and fuller ways, go to His words. It is in every way legitimate to, to, to go to the words of Christ in John's gospel and say, these are His words to me, His disciple. He's speaking to me. And these words have been revealed for me. Jesus' very own friend, He has opened up the mind and will of the Father to me, which is one of the most wonderful ways in which Jesus expresses His love for us. His love for us is not only expressed in reflection on the cross event, but on the ongoing disclosure of truth to us through the Word of God. Now consider with me fourthly, that's something of the Son's love for us, characterized chiefly in the laying down of His life, but also His disclosure of the mind and heart of the Father. Consider with me our love for the Son. Our love for the Son, the Father's love for the Son, the Son's love for the Father, the Son's love for us. Now, fourthly, our love for the Son. And it might be legitimate to say this is what's emphasized in these verses. Verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. We asked a moment ago, how does the Son express His love for the Father? The Son expresses His love for the Father chiefly in His obedience to the Father, in His adherence, glad-hearted, cheerful, joyful adherence to the will of His Father. Now, how do we 
express our love for the Son, our love for Christ. It's not rocket science, it's not alchemy, it's in much the same way. We demonstrate our love for Christ in our glad-hearted obedience to His commands and to our submission to His will. He says, if we keep His commandments, if we keep His commandments, we will abide in His love. Now, that does not mean, don't think that means that Jesus' love is conditioned upon our keeping of the commandments or it's established by our keeping of the commandments. Rather, it means that we experience the full enjoyment of His love in the context of obedience. And what's more than that, our love for Christ is expressed by our obedience to His commands. The demonstration of our love for Him will be our obedience to His will, much like the Son's demonstration of His love for the Father is His submission to His Father's will. We talked about this when we Consider John 14, verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. That obedience is the appointed pathway, the appointed avenue, the proper means by which we express our love for Christ. Now, now if you're a disciple of the Lord Jesus, you hear that. He saved your soul. He's everything beautiful and wonderful to you. And, And you've been told, here's an avenue. Here's a way of expressing your love to the Lord. How eager should we be? This would please my master. This would honor him. This is a way in which I can express my love for my Savior. How eager we should be to follow the commandments. Jesus said earlier in John 14, verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. We said this when we considered those verses. Indifference to the commands of Christ is a sure indication of a lack of love for Christ. You you meet a professing Christian who's indifferent to the commands of Christ. You can know that person has no real love for Christ. Whatever that person might profess, whatever that person might say, it's a sham love, it's a mirage love. Indifference to the will of Christ is an indication of a lack of love for Christ. Conversely, where there is glad-hearted obedience to the commands, that is a sure indication of real, true, sincere, authentic love for Christ. I'm not talking about legalism. Legalism is sort of a quid pro quo idea. If I do this, you do this. If I keep the commandments, we continue in this loving relationship. I earn favor with Christ by my keeping of the commandments. That's not the idea at all. This is not legalism. We said this when we looked at those verses in John 14, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. That does not mean that love is keeping the commandments. That would be a tragic misunderstanding of that verse. Jesus is not saying love is obedience. What's he saying? Love is expressed by obedience. Listen, that that distinction is the difference between a joyful, happy, intimate relationship with Christ 
and then one that is just dour and dark and legalistic. Jesus does not relate to us on a quid pro quo basis. And he doesn't say love is obedience. He says obedience demonstrates love. What is love for Christ? Well, love is delighting in Christ, enjoying Christ, worshiping Christ, adoring Christ, having Christ, tasting Christ, coming to Christ, finding pleasure in Christ. That's what love is. Now, how does all that come to expression? In our obedience to His will. Is it not like this in our familiar relationships on this earth? Like, like if you, you married folks here, if you turn to your spouse, your spouse turns to you and says, how do I know that you love me? How are you going to answer that question? If you could just feel the burn in my heart that I have right now. now. Assuming the question is sincere, you're going to begin to point to those things that demonstrate love. And what are those things? Honey, I... I've given my life for you. Assuming this is a loving marriage, I've given my life to you. I, I serve you. I, I take pleasure in your happiness. And, and, and I've sought to nurture that by my actions and the way I, I live in relationship with you. It's very much like that in our relationship with Christ. Obedience is not our love, but it's the demonstration of our love. It's the sure indication that we are indeed followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. If we pursue that avenue of pleasing Him, which is our obedience to His commands. So don't make the mistake of thinking that love is obedience. That will burn you out, and you will find yourself thinking in terms of a legalistic, transactional relationship with Jesus. That's not the idea. But also remember that where there is true love for Christ, there will be obedience. That's a principle established in the Word of God, where there is true love for the Lord. What will that look like? Look like obedience. Look like living in joyful fellowship with Christ and seeking to follow His will and seeking to honor Him by the way in which we live. Now, fifthly and finally, the fifth love. Have you been tracking with me so far? Have you identified the loves? The fifth and final love. The fourth was our love for the Son. The fifth is our love for one another. Our love for one another. Let's read the verses again. Verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for my friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. And then go down to verse 17. These things I command you so that you will love one another. The Son loves us. We're to abide in His love. Our love is expressed in glad-hearted obedience to His commandments. But now Jesus focuses in on one commandment in particular. If we ask the question, I can express my love to Christ by the, well, what are the commandments? Well, it'd be accurate to say everything Christ commands. That would be true. 
But, but is there one command that outshines them all, or, or maybe in some ways captures them all? In the upper room, there's this one command in particular that is repeated again and again and again at least a half dozen times. And that command is that we love one another. <laughs> Jesus says so many times, that if you love me, you're going to keep my commandments. The one who keeps my commandments, he is the one who abides in me. And then when he talks about what the commandment is or the commandments are, he goes to this issue of our love for one another. We saw this in John 13, didn't we? Jesus said there, a new commandment I give to you, verse 34, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. When we open up that verse, we we ask the question, in what way is this a new commandment? It's not new in that it was completely unprecedented in the Bible. It's new in that there's a new standard that's given, love one another as I have loved you, But I also sought to argue that it's new in that this is presented as like a a new priority for a new community. Here Jesus has before him the pillars upon which the church is going to be built. And there's this new messianic community that's beginning to form in response to Jesus' death and resurrection. And he says to this community, "This this is the priority. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you. And he repeats it again and again and again in the upper room. Are you my disciple? Are you my follower? Keep my commandments. And this commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Other than the command to love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, this is true. There's no command in the Bible that rises to a place of greater priority, greater urgency, greater significance than the command for us to love one another. There's just almost nothing that is more important in the Christian life than that we love one another. John goes on to make this point, the Apostle John, in a most striking way in his epistle to 1 John. You can turn there if you'd like, but don't feel like you need to. In 1 John 4, John says this, verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. The, the point is, don't make a pretense of loving Christ if you don't love Christ's people. The idea that you can actually, truly, sincerely love the Lord Jesus, but be indifferent to His people is disallowed by these passages. You've heard this statement, I'm sure. I've heard it so many times. You know, I'm, I'm fine with Christ, it's just all the Christian people that I can't stand. That is not a holy or godly attitude at all. That's not a Christian attitude at all. The Bible teaches that those who have been changed and impacted by the love of God in Christ, what happens? They become loving people. They love one another. Is it any surprise in Matthew 25, when the last day, the judgment is envisioned? In that passage, 
The standard by which Jesus is judging the crowds on the left and the crowds on his right. What's the standard in that passage? You remember that passage? It's how they treated Christ's people. And here's this crowd of self-professed believers, nominal believers, in name only, not true believers. And they, they feign some sort of attachment and connection to Jesus. How does Jesus judge them? He says, I was naked and you never clothed me. I was sick, you didn't visit me. I was in prison, you didn't come. I, I was needy, I was hungry, you never fed me. And they say, Lord, when did that ever happen? When did we see you naked or, or in prison or sick or hungry? And he says, you didn't do it for my people. You didn't do it for the least of these. You didn't do it for me. Jesus possesses such solidarity with his people that an act of kindness, an act of grace, an act of love toward one of his people is received, is understood by Jesus as an act of love and kindness toward him. We're not far off from the essence of our passage this morning. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. These things I have commanded you that you may love one another. And those who are approved to enter eternal life, who are they? They're the ones who in tangible ways loved God's people, clothed the naked, fed the hungry, helped the needy, visited those who were sick and in prison. Their disposition toward Christ's sheep is what is so pleasing in his eyes, what honors Christ. And so this is the point. If we want to please our Savior, we want to honor our Savior, we'll obey his commandments. And there's this commandment in this passage that outshines them all, that we would actually love one another. Our love for each other is bound up in our fellowship and communion with Christ himself. The manner in which we love one another makes a statement to Jesus about what we think about him. That's a striking thought, isn't it? Jesus observes the way we treat one another. That's an indication of what we think of him. Charles Spurgeon, famous Baptist preacher in London, uh, once was talking about this idea, the love that Christians have for each other. And he was caught up with this idea that, that, that so often that's cited as like a proof. It's cited as a demonstration of something. It's supposed to manifest something. Like the way we relate to each other communicates a message to the world. And he sort of chides his congregation. I'm not going to follow in his pattern and chide you. But he chides his congregation. And he suggests, is it possible that more people would be here in our worship gatherings more people would be here under the preaching of the gospel if the example of Christians commended the message that we preach. And he envisions a, a conversation of a man inviting his neighbor to church with him. And, and, and he says, you know, would you come down to the tabernacle, hear my preacher preach? And the man says something very profound in response. This is a, presumably a heathen man. And he says, well, I assume that your religion makes you what you are. Your religion makes you what you are. That's a transcendental principle. Your religion makes you what you are. And if your religion has made you what you are, I don't want any of it. The way in which we live, the way in which we relate to one another, the way in which we relate to the world is a vindication of our religion, of what we believe, of what is true. 
Wouldn't it be a wonderful thing if you didn't even have to ask, if people can why are you the way you are? You're so loving. You're so gracious. You're so full of tenderness. Why is that? What is it that has made you this way? Then you'd be able to say, I want you to come, come to church. I want you to hear the message. It's a message we call the gospel. It has made me this way. I've been so captivated by the love of God in Christ that, that he has changed me and he's made me into a loving person and that's available to you as well. Spurgeon went on to say, to me a Christian is a friend of man. He is a philanthropist by profession and generous by force of grace. Wide as the reign of sorrow is the stretch of his love. And where he cannot help, he pities still. That is that the love of Christ changes us and makes us loving. And it is our loving of others that provides this convincing proof to the world that we are indeed Christ's disciples. And it commends to the world the love of our Savior. Let's pray together. Our Father, you have provided for us the most striking picture of love in your giving of your Son and of his willful submission to your will that led him to the cross itself under the laying down of his life for sinners. We will not search for any further argument for your love for sinners. We thank you for this most convincing display, this most convincing proof that the Lord Jesus Christ has laid down his life for his friends and that he has drawn countless millions of souls into fellowship and communion with God. We pray, Father, that we would more and more, those of us who are your people, that we would enjoy richer, deeper, and fuller relationship with Christ as his disciples, a fuller experience of communion with him. And may we experience something of a fuller disclosure of your heart for us revealed in the Word of God, your plans and purposes and commands revealed in the Word of God. And Father, I pray now that you would be pleased to draw many more into such fellowship and communion. Would you draw some here even now who have never experienced the love of God in Christ? May they be moved to call out to Christ to say, I want this love. I want to experience this love. I want to have done with my sins. I embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. I turn from my sin to follow him. And may they experience this transforming love that changes our very lives and hearts to make us loving people. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.